Um, let's pray and we're going to dive in kind of where we left off. And I think it's chapter four, verse 28 ish. And we're going to complete chapter four and begin chapter five of Daniel. All right, Lord, thank you so much for today. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be powerful in this place. What a joy it is to study and talk through your scripture. And Lord, just to be free to even just share some of my thoughts or ideas as I walk through scripture and how it came across to me. Lord, there are things that we know for sure. There are truths that happen. There is history revealed in these pages. But then, Lord, there are areas that make us ponder and wonder. And we put ourselves in the position and we wonder how these human beings um, walked through their days. And this is good because we're meditating on Scripture and we see some key things, Lord. We see exactly who you are in your constant and that you are glorious and that you are sovereign. You're absolutely in control. We also see um, what humankind is like and it can act as a warning to us and keep us uh, very humble and on our face before you to know that, Lord, it is you that is in control. But you love us and you love humility. You do not love pride. So God, I pray that that would not be present in us. Um, Lord, I just thank you for the ability to come together and enjoy your word together. Would you please apply it to each life as you know um, it needs to be applied. I sure love you. And God, I pray that we would just enjoy these minutes we have together as we walk through scripture, a verse at a time, not uh, a sermon or entertainment, but truly walking through the words uh, of scripture. We love you in Jesus name. Amen. All right. You ready? Chapter four, verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. What came upon him? Where have we been? It's been a week, I know. When we left him, where was he? Yeah, he, <laughs> he was eating grass. That's what he was doing. He had been turned into a beast, um, like an ox out in the fields eating grass. What did his hair look like? <laughs> Real long. He needed to go to the barber. His hair was like eagle's wings. What? He really needed a pedicure. Right? His nails were like eagle's claws. He lost reason. Okay? And we talked about last time the difference between beast or animal and man. Beast, uh, they go by instinct. They live according to their stomach. But God, because he made us in the image of himself, we have reason. He lost reason. And he became like a beast out um, in the fields. And so that, that's where we kind of left off. So all of this, all of that came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months, he was walking. So now it's happening before it was predicted by Daniel. So how long did he have to repent? A year. Okay. At the end of the 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the Royal palace of Babylon. And the King answered and said, is not this great Babylon? which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. Yikes. 
While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagle feathers, and his nails were like bird claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lived forever. And here's this poem. Here's this song. Do you remember what I told you about that a couple of weeks ago? See? You've not been studying. Anytime you see a poem or a song, anytime it kind of breaks into a musical for a minute, there are going to be themes in here of the entire chapter. And here it is. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand. We're about to learn that in the next chapter. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Don't you love that? He goes, is not this the great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Did you see three things there? Learn to pick up on the rhythm of the verses. The first, that I have built. What is that? Power. Okay, it's like saying by my mighty right hand. It's God language. And I did it. I made it into a royal residence. In other words, what? My house, right? So my power, I've built everything by my power, and it's a house for me for the glory of my majesty. So for my glory. Do you understand? He is acting as if he is who? He is God. By my power, I have built this for my own residence, my dwelling place, so that you would understand my glory. I, I mean, it is, it's bad. While the words were still in his mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. God interrupted. God has the final word. Does this not remind you of the original Babel? Here they are building this tower of Babel, building this city so that they could make a name for themselves, that they are going to rule, that they are going to make sure they are secure. They are building a worldly empire. They're staying together for their power. And God does what? In one moment, he interrupts because his word is final. And he comes down and he in one instant changes their languages. 
I cannot imagine what that was like. I used to act it out when I would teach young people all the time. I'd speak in these different languages. You know, you, here you are building this tower. All the work is going on. And can you imagine that all of a sudden you ask, you know, hey, Roy, send me up some bricks or whatever. And you're working. And all of a sudden they go, and you're like, what are you doing? What'd you do last night? What's going on? What is that kind of language? And you, you mess with Roy for a while and you're like, Ray, hey, send me. I don't know what he did last night. He's Looney Tune. Can you send me up some bricks? And all of a sudden he's like, And you're like, what is, I mean, think about that in all of reality. In one moment, their world was never the same. He shut down the work. That's exactly what happens here. In a moment, he loses reason. In a moment. That voice that speaks, it reminds me of the voice that also spoke when he said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm pleased. We're going to see it in the next chapter when the hand comes down and writes on the wall as a decree. When he speaks, it happens. And that is exactly what happened. So he was interrupted. Um, Isn't it interesting that this time he didn't speak through Daniel? This wasn't a decree of Daniel. This was a decree of God. He speaks and it is done. We get little information about what Nebuchadnezzar was like in the field. I would like to know. But it's not relevant. It doesn't matter. He was a nut. He was a wild beast. We have no idea what that was like. But what we are told is that went on for seven periods. And you remember what I said about that? A lot of people turn that into years. We're really not told if it's years, but it was the amount of time it took for what? Seven is the number of completion. So it's the amount of time it took for him to finally do what? Look up. And that is the key, is the looking up. It says that he lifted up his eyes to heaven and his sanity was returned. The act of lifting up his eyes towards heaven obviously meant that he was acknowledging God's ultimate superiority. That's what it's about. He finally understood that when he lifted up his eyes towards the heavens, he was finally basically bowing the knee to God's ultimate superiority. He understands finally his place in the scheme of things. Listen, we act like this would be easy. Do you understand the power this man had? That kind of power could go to anyone's head. If you think for one minute you would not be tempted uh, into this kind of pride, most of the time we don't understand it because you've never been given this kind of power. Absolute power does what? Corrupts absolutely. I believe very few people could handle this kind of power and not let it go to their head. And so he finally realizes, though, that he is a powerful man, but he is not the most powerful force in the universe. That there is someone more powerful. He understands that everything that he has has been given to him by God. That's the key. What a great thing to think of after Thanksgiving. Everything we have has been given to us by God. Nothing is ours. We're just stewards of whatever it is. And uh, I thought about that yesterday. 
just about when I'm, I was running, I was just thinking about all of Daniel and all of this stuff. And I was thinking about, you know, man, we're, we're not given a lot of detail about everything. Like, where was Daniel when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down? Right? We, we're not told about him. We're not told where he was, if he bowed, all that kind of stuff. And I thought, you know what, Shannon? You don't have to have all that detail. The fact is, they were there. And when they got called up, they were, they honored God. When they got called to task, they did their job. And so they kept their se- themselves on the ready. And that's what I have to do. I have to keep myself so close to God in every situation that I am always on the ready. So that when he calls me up to do whatever it is, that I'm ready to do it. Maybe he's calling me up to have coffee with a young person. Am I ready to do it? Maybe he's calling me up to teach Bible study, to speak to 10,000, to speak to five. Whatever it is, we are told these stories are the times that God called his people up for an important task. But they were ready for those tasks because of honestly what they did in private. Do you understand that? They were faithful in all of those things because they were faithful in their diligence to spend time with the Lord and to honor their covenant and to stay close. They were in the vine. And so when they were called up, they were, they were always ready. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 8.4, it's foolish to say to a king, what are you doing? His word is supreme. So look at verse 35. Does Nebuchadnezzar not say the same thing? It says, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what? What have you done? Verse 37 says that he is the king of heaven. So this all brings us back to the issue of who is in control. And what is the book of Daniel about? Why was it written? You can never forget this as you read it. You've got to keep it in context. This is a problem because when we take things out of context, we miss. I got a um, text message this morning from a young gal over at GCU. Shannon, do you have time to go have coffee because I've been reading Isaiah and I'm bothered. It's bothering me. I don't like how I'm feeling about God. And, I'm th- and that's okay. But what do you think is happening? She doesn't know the context of Isaiah. She doesn't know what's happening in the world in the book of Isaiah, who he is, his audience is, what's going on, uh, what he's been telling them in the past. What she's doing is she's reading prophetic language that is pretty harsh, but she has no idea the context to where it's reading it. So she's equating God's verbiage right here in the, in the chapter of Isaiah. She's equating it right now in our time, thinking it's a message, you know, to her with this harsh prophetic language. And it's meeting her narrative that she thinks God is this uh, angry God that sits upon the throne that's waiting for her to mess up so that he can strike her on the top of the head or send her into exile or do... Is that the same God as the New Testament? Sure doesn't seem right. Do you see what I'm saying? So do not ever forget how this book falls in the culture or the timeline. What is the purpose of Daniel? Why is he writing it? Who is he trying to encourage? 
the exiles, right? So we need to keep that in mind, that he is encouraging the exiles. He is it's to encourage their confidence that in light of their helplessness before a seemingly uh, all-powerful ruler, that God is in control. This story right here pulls back the curtain once more and shows us who truly has the power. The most powerful man in the world just lost all sense of reason in one moment because the God of the universe said enough and he sent him and he was like a wild beast. In a moment, he can shut it down and in a moment, he can restore it. And Nebuchadnezzar knows this and Daniel is writing about it because the exiles need to know what is going on behind the curtain because in their day-to-day life, all they see is the powerful Babylon ruling over their lives and they have no control. But they realize who does have control? Their God. He is still on the throne. He is still in control. I need to know that today for sure. He, they, they are reminded that we learned in Daniel chapter 1 that kings win victories only when God gives it into their hands. Do you remember that? That's how the whole book started. In chapters 2 and 4, we understand that kings only have wisdom uh, when God reveals mystery through maybe his people like Daniel. And we're, we learned in chapter 3 that unless God gives permission, a king has no ability to even harm one hair on the head of his people. They can be thrown into what? The fiery furnace and come out with no scent whatsoever. And so keep in mind that this book is being written to these exiles and to us today to remind us that no matter what we see with our eyeballs of the powerful governments that we live in, that it is God who remains on the throne and it is God that rules the kingdoms of men, right? Do you need to be reminded of that today? Boy, I do. Nebuchadnezzar has a hard time seeing this and you don't blame him because that man leads armies like no other. He built a treasury that built some of the greatest wonders of the world. He was more powerful than any man in the world. Whole nations bowed down to him. And when he woke up in a bad mood, people could die. He is being dealt with for his pride. He needs to understand that every achievement, status, and possession is a gift of God. And his restoration began when he looked up. A cry for help. A recognition of superior power, which culminates in praise that bookends the chapter. Do you remember that? The chapter is bookended. How did the chapter start? I know it's been a couple of weeks. It started with Nebuchadnezzar praising God. And then telling what happened. And then how did it end? With him praising God. And telling the entire empire that they need to honor and praise the God of Daniel. That he is the king of kings. He is the king of heavens. And so he honored him. Once Nebuchadnezzar, once he, once Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges that all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing, God makes him something again. You see this in scripture all the time. You remember the story of Moses? Yes? yes? Are y'all talking to me today? Yes. Are you awake? You still have turkey happening in your tummies? Like, I'm not 
preaching to you. I'm with you, right? We're in this building together. Um, do you remember the story of Moses? Okay, so the first 40 years, here's how you can remember Moses. Um, okay, Moses lived to be 120. His years were broken up. I break them up into like three sections. Okay, the first 40 years of Moses' life, he thought he was something, right? He uh, was rescued from Pharaoh's great edict that threw all the babies in the Nile River. He was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. He was raised in all the wisdom of Egypt, but yet he was also raised by his mother, if you remember. And so he fully understood who he was as a Jew, and he felt that he was called to lead his people. We know this because when he came out and he saw the Egyptian slave master beating the crud out of some Jewish men, he killed them because he thought, here I am, I'm the leader. He thought he was something. And he learned in one minute, what? No. Because then Pharaoh found out, because anytime you try to cover something up in the sand, it's not going to stay covered. And so then Pharaoh found out. He had to run for his life. And where did he end up? In the wilderness with a bunch of stinky sheep for the next 40 years. Which, by the way, that's going to come in handy because no time in exile is wasted. Because he learned how to be patient with a bunch of stiff-necked, dumb sheep. And he also learned how to survive in the wilderness. And he knew that wilderness better than anyone else because eventually he was going to be in that wilderness with some other dumb, stinky sheep, stiff-necked sheep, right? So the first 40 years, he thought he was something. The second 40 years of his life, he found out he was nothing. And then he ran into a burning bush. And that burning bush was the best um, example of what God was trying to teach him. It was the best visual aid because here you have a bush that's on fire, but it's not being consumed. It's not about the fuel of the bush. The fuel comes from God. And that's what he had to understand, that it's not about him. It's about God in him. And so he had to be humbled. And so the last 40 years of his life, he got to see what God could do through a nothing. See, God doesn't use pride. He uses humility. When we are weak, he is strong. And I don't know about you, but I always err on the, I'm always the, I don't know if I can do this. I don't, you know, because pride scares the bejeebs out of me. And so here, when he finally realizes that in light of God, all of humankind is nothing, then he is what? He is exalted back to his position of leadership because now he understands. Sometimes, though, man, we don't get to see this in our world, right? Doesn't it just seem like the wicked flourish? It's so aggravating. It makes me so crazy. God, when are you going to lay them bare? Do you see what is happening? This is not right. What is going on is not right. Listen, we're not unusual feeling that. Look at Psalm 73. Starting in verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs. Until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. That was a good thing, by the way. 
They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. I mean, does that not aggravate you? The logic in our world today, the stuff that is not being judged on, or people aren't being thrown in jail, but then the ones who are, it makes you a nutbag when you listen to the news. Nothing seems to be, to be right. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow through follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. They can say anything they want. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? We're like, how is God letting this happen? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Do you hear that? All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus... I would have betrayed the generation of your children. It's all through. This is nothing new. When we look out and we're so frustrated that pride and arrogance seem to be rewarded and humility seems to be trodden on. But I'm going to tell you, do not forget who is actually in control. It is God. And when the time comes, when he speaks, oh, it will be so. And so my job is to stay with a humble heart before the Lord, filled with His laws and His love, and be ready when He calls me up to duty. All right, chapter 5, are you ready? Ooh, this is a good one. Let me just read, let's see. I don't want to read the whole thing right now. I'm just going to read the first few verses and then I'm going to set it up. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. All right, now let me set this up for you because you think that this just happened after the last chapter and it didn't. And it's very confusing because the way it sounds, it sounds like it just happened that Belshazzar is Nebuchadnezzar's son. But I don't want you to think that because it's not true. All right. I have to tell you that in the past, historians actually said that Daniel chapter five, five had no historicity, that the history was not accurate. But today we have proven that it is. Because uh, discoveries have proven it. There's something called the, oh, I got to say this word, 
Nabonidus cylinders. Nabonidus was one of the kings I'm going to tell you about. And they, you can see them today in the uh, British Museum. And they are like these, um, these cylinders that you can roll out and there's information on them, okay? And so they were found in Ur, which is south of Babylon in 1854. Do you know where Ur is? If you know the motions I taught you one day, you should know where Ur is. Do you know who was from Ur? Abraham, right? Do you remember this? Creation, fall, flood, nations, 4,000 years. Ur. Where is Ur? In front of the Persian Gulf. So stick your finger in the Persian Gulf and taste it. What does it taste like? Salt. Ah, that reminds me of a family. Sarah, Abraham, Lot, and Terah that God called out of Ur, the area of Babylon, right? And said, I want you to travel between two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. And they ended up in Haran where Terah, Abraham's father, died. Do you see how all this is? So when you get to learn the area, you're like, that is, that is stinking interesting. So it reminds you that Abraham was called out of this area to come to the promised land that he was as pagan as anyone before him, but in God's sovereignty, he revealed himself to Abraham and Abraham believed God and moved. And so it brings all of this back around when you recognize um, these places. So in Ur, Nabonidus had buried these cylinders that had historical facts on them and they were found in in 1854. They were left at each corner of the city, probably because Nabonidus was famous for rebuilding one of the ziggurats, the temples, you know, that looks like this, okay? That would have been the kind of temple that had originally been built in Babel, the Babel of old, and so he had rebuilt the ziggurat, and he left these historical documents, and we found them. We discovered them. So it proves the historicity of Daniel chapter 5. Just know that. So Nebuchadnezzar died in 562 B.C. And he was uh, followed by, we call him, uh, the evil Moradoc. He is talked about in Jeremiah 5231. And he is also referred to in 2 Kings 25-27. His true name was Amel Marduk, which is the name of the main god of Babylon, Marduk. All right? And he reigned for two years. And then he was murdered. I think by, I think it was a brother-in-law. But anyway, the next one was Margal Shar Usar. And he reigned for four years. So how far have we come now? Six. And then there is Labasi Marduk, and he only reigned, it varies, some say two months, some say six months. So we're talking about basically about six and a half years, and then there is a coup. And so a group of conspirators um, come in, and they murder him, and they put Nabonidus, the one I told you that wrote down the historicity and buried it, right? They put him on the throne. But what he, and by the way, he is listed, if you look in your history books, as the last Chaldean king or the king of Babylon, which makes you question the Bible 
Because, wait a minute, what about Belshazzar? It says that he is king. Well, he is king. He is Nabonidus' son. And so what happened is Nabonidus uh, basically fled out of the city of Babylon and stayed in Saudi Arabia for 10 years. And when he did, he made his son Belshazzar, Belshazzar co-regent over the capital. Okay. And many believe that he did that because he worshiped um, the moon god Sin. Isn't that crazy? Okay. He worshiped the moon god Sin and he made him a priority over the main god who, remember what I told you his name was? Marduk. And the priests of Marduk did not like that at all. So, bottom line, there was great tension between politics and the church, the religion, and basically Nabonidus kind of got pushed out a little bit, and so he left and went to a different location. He's still king, but he left his son in charge of Babylon. Now, this makes sense because later on we're going to read that when this crazy hand comes down and begins to write on the wall, anybody that can interpret it, do you remember what he promises them? All kinds of riches, but he promises them that they will be third in charge, right? Now think about that. Why third? Because if you go back to a situation like, you remember when Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dream? What did he promise him? You will be second in command under me. But Belshazzar couldn't say that because he was second in command, basically. He was a co-regent. And so you're like, Shannon, who cares. We care. Because when, when you learn something in the Bible, don't you want to know the historicity of it? That it's legit? That this isn't just some fantasy story? That we actually have facts that back it up? Because I'm going to teach it to you as if it is absolutely real. So don't you want to know it's real? So those little things give you hints of actually what is happening in the history of this story is that there are co-regents that are reigning over Babylon. And so that's what's happened. Chapter 5, when it says that he is the son of Nebuchadnezzar, it is consistent with Near Eastern usage signifying ancestor. Okay? And you're going to have all kinds of disagreement about this, but a lot of people believe that Belshazzar's mother was actually the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. And so he is his ancestor, but I don't want you to think it's son. So what you need to understand is there have been between chapters 4 and 5, you know, give or take, possibly a good 20 years that has happened. Because if you read it from four to five, what would you just assume? Okay, it just happened right after that. And you're like, wait a minute. We was just praising the most high God. Now this idiot kid is, no, there's been some time. And not only that, with all this time, what's happened with Daniel? He's old. Okay, he's gotten old. And so later on, when she has to go get Daniel, oh, I remember a man, okay? You're like, what happened? He was just the main guy, the character of chapter four that got it done. Now we can't find him. Does that make sense to you? 
There's been years that have gone and years where they've gone back towards Babel, not back towards God. And so now that you see all that, okay? Um, this chapter is famous. I was actually shocked. I was talking to my friend last night and I said, I was telling her, I go, we were talking about worldly events, and then I got all involved in talking about Daniel chapter 5 and worldly events. It was crazy. And um, I said, you know Daniel chapter 5? It's one of the most famous chapters. And she goes, no, I don't. I said, yes, you do. The hand comes down, and the candlestick lights it up, and the hand comes down and writes on the wall. She's like, no, I don't know that chapter. I said, do you not know the expression, the writing is on the wall? And she goes, that came from the Bible? I said, am I your best friend? And she goes, yes. And I go, how do you not know this? I have failed. And she's like, no, you haven't. She's like, you haven't failed. I have failed. If you're my best friend, why do I not know this stuff better? And I said, well, I don't know. I said, politics is your lane and the Bible is my lane. And by the time we all get together to discuss it, I'm telling you what, that's quite a conversation. And so, but you guys, this chapter is famous. Artwork has been uh, depicted. Uh, music has been made. And one of the greatest sayings, right? What is it? The writing is on the wall. This all came from Daniel chapter 5. The chapter brings us full circle with a lot of things. I'm going to start to bring it all together for you. One of which is the golden vessels are the articles in the temple. So think about it. This entire time, these articles have been over here kind of hidden. We've forgotten about them. And remember how when I first started teaching, I told you they're very much synonymous with the people of God too. Because we've been talking about the government of Babylon this whole time and everything that's going on, but we have forgotten there is a whole group of people in exile all of these years that are feeling pretty, what, hopeless and forgotten and wondering what is going to happen with all the promises that have been made to them. And so in this scene, it's like a showdown. Because the articles are going to be brought in. And so is Daniel, who has kind of been forgotten over the last... I mean, he's still in politics, but he's in his 80s. All right? And so now we have these two things that are going to come together as a showdown because everything is coming full circle. They are reminders. Uh, these articles are reminders of the splendor of God's temple. They're reminders of the promised land. They're also reminders of this tragic exile about what has happened. They are beautiful reminders of the glory of God, the value of God. And so all of these things are going to play a part in this showdown. It is not over. It is not forgotten. It is so reminds me of the stump of Jesse that's been cut off, but there will be a shoot that comes forth. When we think it's over, it's not over. All right. It's kind of like, you know, when you watch stupid shows and the, the person gets murdered and you're like, don't walk away. Don't. He's not dead. Don't do it. He's coming. I, why do you not just take him completely out? Why? Don't turn your back. Don't hug him. 
this guy is going to get up and shoot you while you're hugging. Am I the only one that watches these shows? But this is what's happening here, okay? This tension is happening. These things have been silent for a while. You think the enemy is winning, but all of a sudden, these articles are going to be brought in this room, and Daniel's going to come in this room. And this is going to come full circle, because it ain't over, and Babylon does not get the last word. Aren't we so happy about that? The reminder that by all accounts, it seems Babylon has all the power, but all the previous chapters have proven otherwise. It is God who gives victories. It is God who reveals mysteries. It is God that holds life and death in his hand. It is God who determines man from beast. He is the king. Chapter 5 is the ultimate showdown. It brings us back to the theme of the king's table and food. Isn't that interesting? We see a parallel here with Daniel 1, where Daniel and his friends refused to eat the king's food. These chapters started with a table. They started with food and wine. They started where Daniel and his friends refused to eat the food and drink the wine of the king. They refused to defile themselves. And do you remember why? Because for them, food was a part of the law, which was the covenant of God. It was their covenant relationship. And so keep in mind, I mean, they had new names. They've been given Babylonian names. They had new dress, a whole new way of life. They had stinking government jobs. But when it comes down to their covenant relationship with God, they will not compromise. And for them... That was the food and wine. And do you remember one of the reasons? Because that food and wine was first offered to to idols. And so they 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 wouldn't have any part. But they trusted their lives and provision to God. They trusted. It also brings back to mind again in the last chapter the reference of the tree of life. Babylon supplying food for the empire. Do you remember that? And before we broke for Thanksgiving, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had that dream about how he was a tree and that that tree fed and sheltered the whole world. And so what God was saying, right, is no, there is no counterfeit tree of life. No earthly empire will ever truly be. You cannot rebuild what you lost in the garden. You're not capable of doing that. The only way you will ever once again see the tree of life is if you are recreated because mankind is broken, right? And you cannot recreate that in your own strength. You can't build Babel and it be enough. The only way you will get the tree of life back is to believe in me and to be reborn and recreated. And in the end, we will enjoy that. But no, no human empire will ever be able to be a tree of life. But here, it sure seems like that. This scene, this banquet hall filled with thousand noblemen. Can you imagine the party? Have you ever put on a wedding? I was at a party the other night where 180 people were there. It was full. It was happening. A thousand. And that's the noblemen. That's not counting the wives and the con. I mean, this was a party. 
and it was full of excess and opulence. Have you ever watched old movies of royalty where they sat in these banquet halls and the dancing and the music and the wine and the food? This is what is going on. This wasn't just a meal to fill their bellies. This was all also about beauty. I mean, have you ever watched the Food Network? No? Hillary and I watch that all the time. Well, we're in love with Feed Phil. I don't know if you've ever seen that show, Somebody Feed Phil. Where have y'all been? Y'all need to watch Somebody Feed Phil. It is the best food show ever. He travels all over the world, and he makes me happy. Uh, there's something about that man. He exudes joy, and he has the best smile, and he gets so excited over food that you cannot believe it. So when I'm sad, I watch Somebody Feed Phil because he makes me happy. And But the whole point is it's not just about the taste, right? It's about what? This presentation. Do you realize that's just another thing that separates us from animal? Think about it. No animal gives a rip what their food looks like on a plate. Right? They just go after it like a beast. Now listen, I've seen my son do that. Like He don't care what it looks like. You've ever seen your kids so starving to death, you can put anything in front of them, they just devour it. But that is not it. You need to understand, this is like this farce of absolute opulence. And uh, it's like this farce of this civilization. And we just came off a chapter about what happened. About a beast that had gone out and lost all reason. What separates us? What is the fine line that separates us from civility? And from being a beast. Last night when I was running, I kept thinking, see, this is what happens to my mind. I don't even know if I should tell you this stuff. It's wackadoodle. But I was running last night and I'm like, huh. To be made in the image of God is the ability that we have reason. We're relational. We're creative. We create things. We not only, we like the aesthetic quality of things the beauty of it, to be creative, and we rule. And, and when we do that, we were creating the image of God, and even in sin, we still do it because we try to create this counterfeit. Everything's counterfeit, and that's what this is about. There will be no counterfeit. We have to bow the knee to God. Th- this is what it is, and I was thinking, so what would it be then when God says, oh, okay, you want to see what you're really like? Let me release. And all of a sudden, he became like a wild beast in the field with no reason, just going from appetite to appetite to appetite. And I thought, huh, I wonder if that is what the gnashing of teeth is like. You know, we all question, what, what is that exactly? And what would that be? Well, what happens when you remove all presence of God? Do you then remove the image of God? And then we realize, really, at the end of it all, without him, we're just a beast. And today, when you see certain things happening in this world, don't you see the qualities of beasts? When you look at what just this consuming, when you look at what's happening with children, the fact that we would traffic and sell children, and all of the different things that are happening, Sheer wickedness. No wonder he's called the beast. 
And they're more like their father, the beast. And all of this just kind of goes, see, this is the beauty of studying the scripture. This is what I want you to fall in love with. That way, when you're in it all the time and you're running or you're like, I ain't running. I'm not running unless someone chases me with a weapon. (laughs) When you're doing whatever it is that you do to stay sane, um, you ponder these kinds of things and these things start to, to come to your mind. So let me see if I can find an ending thought. Um, <laughs> hold on, I've got to find where I was. Okay, I'll end. Oh, look, in my notes, I go point. So maybe this is the point where I needed to end. <laughs> Hopefully it's a good one. (laughs) I didn't look at it before. Okay. Oh, I wrote, this banquet was a magnificent, magnificent spectacle involving the the best place settings for a thousand noble men. Archaeologists say that in the discovery of Babylon that they've discovered huge halls that actually could have seated this amount of people. Can't imagine. Under the brilliant light of a golden lampstand. What a beautiful night. But what was the purpose of the feast? I'm going to give you a hint. Why was he putting on such a feast, this Belshazzar? I want you to read Esther chapter 1. It's going to give you a hint. Do you remember what's happening in Esther chapter 1? There's a feast. There's a banquet happening. And it's happening because something is going on in the world. And, and uh, Xerxes is throwing a banquet because something is about to happen. That will give you a hint because something is happening outside the walls of Babylon right now while he's throwing this crazy feast. It's very similar to me when you watch the movie The Titanic. You remember how the music and the parties are still going and when you watch the movie, you're like, fools! Do you honestly think this music and wine and your riches and your trunks are going to save you? Get in the boats! Like running! You're Run! You're going down! But what do they think? No. No way! This is the Titanic. It can never sink. And... Definitely won't sink with us in it. We're too important, right? Keep that in mind when you realize what is happening outside the walls when this guy is throwing the most extravagant banquet you have ever seen. He's thinking, we're good. There's no way. Nothing can sink us. But we're going to see what happens. Are Are you excited to come next week to hear the story? Isn't the Bible good? It's so good. Get your face in it. (laughs) If all you ever do is come here to listen to this crazy woman tell you a story, okay, you're missing out. Because next week I'm going to point out a lot of symbolism, so be ready, so that you can see that the Bible is just, oh, it's just full of it. But you've got to study it. Because remember, when I study it and I chew it up and then I give it out to you, you're just eating my regurgitated food. 
it is disgusting. All right. Now, it'll keep you alive. You know, it will. It'll keep you alive. But don't you want to chew your own? And, and when you do that, you are literally robbing yourself of the fact that the Holy Spirit would really like to talk to you. I mean, you are having the scriptures filtered through a crazy Southern woman. You might ought to talk to him directly, okay? Because, but it is good, good stuff. And it is worth studying. And it reminds you that when you're spinning out of control, that God is in charge. Do you not think Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego suffered? I thought also while I was running, I know I'm over and... If you need to go, go. Because um, it's just me stuff. I thought, you know, we don't really get to see much in their personal life as to what they went through living in Babylon. You know, I personally believe they were concubines in every sense of the word. Some people don't, and that's fine. It's, it's not that important. But you think, huh, there's nothing really ever talked about generations genealogy, uh, wives, relationships, you know, anything like that. And these were the best of the best that were in Jerusalem. Their, their life was supposed to go one direction. And all of a sudden, in a moment, what happened? It went completely different. You can't tell me that they didn't have days of mourning and grieving what could have or should have been. That they didn't have days where they were lonely or they were defeated or all of those things. And I don't think they were perfect. Why did we not learn about Daniel and the statue? I don't know. Maybe Daniel bowed down for a minute. I don't know. I'm, listen, if I just ruined your Daniel perspective, I'm sorry. But they're, they're not perfection. They're human beings that had great faith in God. And they, to the best of their ability, they held on to that faith and that covenant. But they struggled. But they knew God so deeply that in great moments where God used them, they were able to impact an entire empire and have great influence in the story of God. Because when they were called, they were ready. And they rose up and they met that task. The only way you will be able to do that is if you get prepared behind the scenes so that when he calls you, you will be ready in that moment. So don't get sidetracked by all the stuff that's going on in this world. It's so irritating. It's scary. All of that. But remember, we have been given opportunities here where God's pulled the curtain back and we get to see who is actually in control. And we're going to see he doesn't have to do a lot of effort. It can be by one voice or by a finger. And it's done. He is all powerful. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the reminder. Oh, your word is like honey on our lips for sure. We need this reminder. Lord, I even thank you as I grieved this uh, holiday, I, I even thank you that you allowed death because God, I would never want to live eternally in this sinful flesh.
We were never meant to be separated from you forever. So I thank you that you gave the opportunity that my soul, my spirit could be reborn from above. And that one day I will get rid of this flesh, this sinful flesh, and you will give me a glorified body. And it will be then, Lord, that we absolutely experience the true banquet, not the counterfeit one, but the true banquet where no enemy could ever be storming our gates. And you have said that it will be such a great banquet that the meat will be there when the bone's still in it. It will be the best meat you've ever put in your mouth. And the wine, the joy that will be in that room. And we will be joined with our loved ones and we will celebrate for eternity. So God, give me and these women endurance to stay true to your word, to get to know you, to hang on to you, to be ready that when the time comes and you call us up to task, that we will be faithful and that we will be a part of the God story for someone. We will be that network that brings people to you. So one day at that banquet and we tell stories, we can see all the points of contact and we can celebrate and give you the glory for that. Thank you, Lord, for this reminder in the middle of this week. We sure love you. In Jesus' name, amen.